0: So, as you know, the, uh, this lecture is uh, a tribute uh, to the memory of Browning Hoffman. Browning was a psychiatrist that joined our faculty in 1971, held joint appointments in the schools of medicine and law, true joint appointments. They were not, these were not paper appointments. I mean, he was both places all the time. Uh, found, he founded the Institute of Law Psychiatry and Public Policy and laid the groundwork for other programs in law and medicine more generally uh, at the university that I think we now take for granted. Um, He did all this with extraordinary energy and creativity until his work was cut tragically short by a sudden death in 1979. The period of his work, roughly the 1970s, was a time of uh, rich intellectual ferment in both the domains of policy and practice that generally go uh, or merge at the intersection of uh, of law and psychiatry and the allied specialties, uh, subspecialties within psychology uh, also. First of all, a rich body of mental health law that protects the rights and interests of people with mental disabilities. And secondly, the body of rules that govern the use of mental health evidence in courts especially in criminal adjudication, Uh, and, of course, that kind of testimony is offered by a variety of uh, forensic mental health specialists, including uh, forensic psychiatrists, uh, forensic psychologists, and forensic social workers. Uh, This excitement of that period spawned a new generation of scholars working at the intersection of law and behavioral sciences generally. And among the new generation uh, at that time were Browning, myself, my colleague John Monahan who is here as well, and nine of the previous Hoffman lecturers, all of whom are listed uh, on your program uh, brochure. Uh, This year's Hoffman lecture will be delivered by Dr. Mark Lewis, uh, but before formally introducing him, I want to say a few more words about Browning. Um, He had a passion for ideas. Uh, and truly awesome intellectual energy on literally hundreds, and that's not an exaggeration, of occasions uh, over the five years that we worked together. He would come into my office and plump down uh, in an easy chair uh, saying, I need to rattle your cage. And off he would go uh, into the latest effort to solve what might have appeared to everyone else to be um, an intractable problem. He was a man with a mission genuine collaboration across the disciplines of law and psychiatry and other behavioral sciences, and he viewed his own assignment here at the university as one of building bridges to allow that to happen, which is harder than it might seem. His immediate aim was to connect the training and professional activity of lawyers, psychiatrists, and psychologists in a common cause, better informed public policies, and improved administration of the law. The fundamental challenge, as he saw it, is putting all those professions in the same classroom at the same time. He had a clear vision of the possibilities for such joint educational activities, and he put many of them in place here at the university within a few years. They include the forensic psychiatry clinic, a practicing clinic at the medical school that continues its work postgraduate fellowships in each of the pertinent disciplines, law, psychiatry, and psychology, and a training and continuing education portfolio for professionals in law and mental health disciplines already in practice. He also planted the seeds for a partnership between the university and state government in Richmond that has helped to shape mental health policies in the commonwealth for four decades. For me and all his friends and colleagues, Browning's death was made especially tragic by a sense of promise unfulfilled, as you can imagine. Yet Browning himself had a different view. He told me at his bedside in the hospital that he had felt that he had already accomplished most of what he set out to do. Now, I have no doubt that imminent mortality had scaled down his ambitions a bit. But he did, in fact, accomplish a remarkable amount in his eight years here. He left an enduring legacy for which hundreds of students and residents in the schools of law, medicine, and medicine owe him uh, a great debt. The fellows uh, and uh, junior faculty, uh, whom Browning personally trained in our program in that short period of time, now serve on faculties of law, psychiatry, psychology, and public health throughout the country and are among the leaders uh, of this field. I have been emphasizing Browning's contributions to law and psychiatry, but his creative vision and intellectual uh, curiosity ranged across the lifespan and touched all of what I will call the sciences of human well-being. We could just as easily have entitled this lecture series the Hoffman Lecture in Law and Human Behavior or the Hoffman Lecture in Law and Medicine. Over the past decades, in fact, the topics addressed by our distinguished lecturers have ranged from ethical issues at the end of life uh, to psychiatric genetics. Our most recent lectures in the last couple of uh, uh, lectures have focused more on contemporary social issues. Uh, Dr. Lawrence Steinberg explored the implications of recent advances in the science of adolescent development to uh, criminal punishment. Professor Jeffrey Swanson in the last lecture explored the connections between mental illness and gun violence, obviously issues that continue to be pertinent everyday uh, public discourse. So today, we continue in that vein by taking on the science of addiction at a time when our nation is struggling with an epidemic of opioid addiction of unprecedented scope and magnitude. Mark Lewis will address a question that is once uh, technical and provocative, is addiction a brain disease, and does it matter? He asks whether addiction is a brain disease and why the answer matters. Even the technical part of his subject is interesting. What does it mean to characterize a condition as a disease? What risk factors for premature mortality or morbidity, such as uh, elevated blood blood sugar, does the person have a disease? Uh, What does it mean to characterize that condition as a disease? Uh, Does it matter if the elevated risk can be reduced by changing one's diet and behavior? Is being overweight a disease? Ingesting addictive drugs changes the brain. Not only during the acute phase of intoxication, of course, but in more enduring ways. And those changes can have harmful effects on behavior and well-being. Does that mean addiction is a brain disease? Chronic alcohol use clearly can cause organic injury to the brain, and it is commonplace to characterize these effects as brain pathology. But does the experience of craving drugs, a cardinal diagnostic feature of addiction, amount to a manifestation of brain pathology? Obviously, the words that we use to characterize addiction carry huge ethical implications for individual choice. Uh, and also for public policy. Indeed, there is a case pending in the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court right now involving a woman uh, who had committed uh, drug offenses, uh, and I think theft in relation to those offenses, um, uh, who was convicted of them, uh, obviously had had an addiction problem, agreed to participate in drug treatment uh, as a condition of probation, and then, not long after, uh, the order relapsed. Um, and uh, uh, was then, uh, her probation was revoked. And the uh, argument being made is that addiction, based on diagnostic criteria and many many of the articles recently written in, in this vein, that addiction is a brain disease and her relapse is a symptom of the disease. So how can she be punished for relapsing when essentially it was expected? Um, Virtually the entire public health leadership of the United States characterizes addiction as a brain disease. Does it make scientific and conceptual sense to use these words? And whatever the answer to that question, is it socially or clinically useful to use them as our public health leaders appear to believe? Even the word addiction itself is provocative. I have been engaged in drug policy discourse for nearly 50 years. The word addiction has been in and out of favor over that period of time among different stakeholder constituencies. Many think it should be avoided because it is stigmatizing and pejorative. Others think a weaker term, such as the current diagnostic statement of drug use disorder or characterization label, understates the severity of the condition. The grip of addiction, so to speak, is a bit more emphatic. than drug use disorder. And that use of the term addiction signals the imperative importance of doing something about it, at least from a societal standpoint. Once the selection committee for the Hoffman Lecture had decided to devote it this year uh, to the topic of addiction, I spent many hours exploring what has become a vibrant and very timely multidisciplinary conversation about the language of addiction. One of our previous Hoffman lecturers, Stephen Morse, a member of the Pennsylvania Law Faculty, has been a prominent participant in that discussion and one strongly opposed to the use of uh, characterization uh, of uh, addiction as a brain disease. I can tell you without a hint of flattery or hyperbole that I was strongly drawn to Mark Lewis's insightful and careful analysis of this problem, particularly because it effectively weaves together developmental neuroscience, clinical psychology and behavioral economics. Mark graduated from the University of California at Berkeley in 1975, having majored in music. Uh, That was the year, by the way, that the National Institute on Drug Abuse was established uh, and launched what has been an extraordinarily fruitful investment in the neuroscience of addiction. Whatever you call it, this has been an extraordinary body of work and has been extremely influential. After more than a decade of uh, travel, Uh, and occasional graduate studies and generally, shall we say, delayed maturation, Uh, Mark earned his doctorate uh, in applied psychology uh, at the University of Toronto in 1989. He immediately launched a distinguished scientific career in child development research focusing on neural mechanisms of self-regulation in the developing brain. In 2010, after approximately 20 years uh, uh, at Toronto, he decided to take a different path, moving to the Netherlands, joining the faculty at Radboud uh, Radboud University, and refocusing his scholarly attention on uh, how an understanding of developmental neuroscience can inform the study of addiction, which, after all, typically has its roots in adolescence. Mark's first book on addiction, Memoirs of Addicted Addicted Brain in 2011, uh, connects his own years of drug use with an account of how the brain changes with addiction. In the second, The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease, in 2015, he links biographies of addicts with neuropsychological findings to show how addiction develops and how it can be overcome. Both books have been published in several languages, and biology received uh, the the Prose Association of American Publishers Award for Psychology in 2016. Uh, It is indeed with great pleasure that I present Professor Mark Lewis to deliver the 17th Hoffman Memorial Lecture in Law and Psychiatry.
1: Thank you, Richard. That was a was very uh, informative and and uh, uplifting introduction. I I feel a bit like I've walked into the lion's den here, being in the U.S. uh, because, as you say, it's it's pretty much the hegemony. It's it's the it's it's. It's the main act, that addiction is a disease. It's handed down by all of the authorities, governmental, mental health, the NIH, the and everybody else, that addiction is indeed a disease. And many of my talks are in Europe, uh, Australia. I've gone back to Australia a few times, Canada and other places. I've been to the US a bit and talked in the US, but really, yeah, this is kind of like, I I feel that there's a certain amount of resistance that I can expect. towards my arguments, but I will try to convince you that the uh, the disease model of addiction uh, is is not particularly sound in its logic and its rationality, and also in terms of its public utility, it is at best ambiguous. It has some advantages, but certainly some disadvantages as well. Um, And as as Richard suggested in his introduction, I'm certainly not wanting to throw the brain out with the bathwater. I have studied neuroscience myself and done a bit of research on publication, well, more than a bit. Uh, for much of my career, and I very much respect the brain science that has come about through the efforts of NIDA and the other addiction authorities uh, at work in the U.S. Not to mention the funding available for research elsewhere. Okay, so <coughs> the, uh, the main tenets of the, of, the, of the definition is laid down by NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and this is available on their, their homepage. Uh, addiction is defined as a chronic relapsing brain disease that is characterized by compulsive drug-seeking and use despite harmful consequences, and the emphasis here, chronic and relapsing brain disease, obviously. Brain imaging studies from drug-addicted individuals show physical changes in areas of the brain that are critical for judgment, decision-making, learning and memory, and behavior control. <coughs> emphasis on physical changes in the brain, and, of course, these... Uh, Functions are pretty much all of the functions that we care about, judgment, decision-making. In other words, it pretty much messes up the entire brain. Um, And third, in vulnerable individuals, the disease of addiction is produced by chronic administration of the drugs themselves. So it's the drugs that are messing up the brain. They're wrecking the circuitry. And that's been their position for a long time. That's the party line, although I do think it is changing. I think it's changing. And... There is some kind of resolution. Maybe I'll get to that at the end between different uh, perspectives on addiction and how, where we might be able to go with that. So, premises of the disease model: first, brain change equals brain disease. No, um, it's a, uh, it's um oh, that synchronizes better on my, on my Apple. <laughs> oh well. Um, Because, of course, the brain is supposed to change. I mean, your liver and your heart and your lungs are, you want them to stay pretty much the same from early in life until death, but your brain is supposed to change. It's designed to change. We know that brain change is absolutely necessary for all learning, for all experience, for for all activity. And neuroplasticity has become a very, I think, increasingly popular way of thinking about brain function. Neuroplasticity, the idea that brain change isn't something that just stops when people achieve adulthood, but rather is a capacity that the brain has throughout life. And we see this in its most dramatic form in recovery from strokes and other forms of brain damage. It's a very plastic, changeable organ. Um, So maybe the kinds of changes that drugs make in the brain, maybe that's the problem. No, because we see very similar brain changes in the behavioral addictions, Uh, gambling, porn addiction, sex addiction, gaming addiction, internet addiction, binge eating disorders, obesity, uh, obesity, well, These are sometimes called process addictions, behavioral addictions, and there's been a lot of work lately showing that not only do these things look like substance addiction in terms of their behavioral manifestations, but very, very much the same in terms of their neural manifestations. In terms of the whole dopamine circuitry, the dopamine coming up from the midbrain to the striatum, changes in cellular mechanisms and patterns in the striatum, shutdown of certain prefrontal functions, and all that stuff. And in fact, Norovolco has studied binge eating disorders for years and talked about some of the uh, correspondences with uh, substance addiction. So no, it's not drugs per se that's the problem. Maybe uh, brain change in addiction, maybe it's addiction. Maybe that's where the disease idea comes in because addiction, because the brain changes that occur with addiction are unique. But I don't think they are. And I think this is actually a critical part of the argument. Uh, it, okay, I'm just follow my slides. Brain changes seen in addiction, for example, changes in sensitivity of the dopamine receptors, are seen with sports, wealth acquisition, politics, shopping, love and sex, religious experience. They're shown in all kinds of human activities that have to do with highly motivating activities, highly motivating rewards, attractive things like getting money, getting sex, getting pizza, getting God, Um, and uh, also with repetitive acquisitions, or repetitive patterns of acquisition. When you put those two things together, high motivation and repetition, uh, you, in fact, get changes in the dopamine system. Dopamine is all about drive. It's all about goal-relatedness, goal-focused. It focuses and narrows your attention, and it gives you that motivational push towards the goal. So it has an emotional component and also a cognitive component. And it is a very human uh, reaction to rewards, to, uh, to um, goals that we find attractive. I think the love and sex story is, is in fact most interesting because uh, falling in love is like an addiction behaviorally in, in some fairly obvious ways. And we think we see the uh, loved object as being entirely delightful and, uh, and the best thing in the world. And that lasts for a while. <laughs> and then we start to see some of the perhaps more negative uh, aspects of the relationship, um, which become more clear over time. And hopefully we get past that and uh, keep going, but not always. Um, and and indeed, there's a lot of studies about, the, about dopamine and sexual response in mating, whether it's in humans or in prairie voles, it's part of the deal. Um, <clears throat> Premise that addiction is chronic. No, there's lots of evidence to show that most people recover from addiction, and that goes with all drugs, including heroin. Most people recover. This may seem counterintuitive, but uh, it's it's there. You can Google NISARC for some of the main findings, and there's quite been a number of newer studies that show people recovery rates from a number of drugs, methamphetamine, uh, heroin. Certainly with alcohol. Alcohol is a great example because uh, alcohol use disorder binge drinking for example in college is fairly common but people who have that and it's a real addiction stop in their 30s usually in their early 30s most of them stop because they're growing up and because their life is changing and their different responsibilities and a different sense of self so these would be the sorts of contextual factors that would get people to quit and they quit without formal treatment. The majority of those who quit quit without treatment and that's a really important fact. Um, they call it spontaneous recovery or maturing out of addiction, phrases of that sort. There is a percentage, clearly, maybe 10, maybe 15, I don't know, it varies with the substance and the situation and the country and the culture and the economics and everything else, but there's a certain percentage that do need treatment, but most don't. And. <laughs> Most diseases get worse with time if they're not treated, at least serious diseases. So there's this is a seeming contradiction. Um, and fifth, the idea that addiction destroys the will. This, this has been touted by, um, by Nora Volkow, the head of NIDA, uh, really consistently for years now in her lectures and uh, podcasts and so forth and writings, uh, that the problem with addiction is that it takes away willpower or the capacity to make choices. That's what it does. And, and that's why we can't blame addicts for the things that they do because they lose the capacity to choose. And I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Um, I would argue that no, addiction does not destroy the will. Uh, as someone who myself was uh, in addiction, an addict if you like, in, during my 20s, I remember how much willpower was required just to acquire drugs, just to get the forging prescriptions and. Cheating and lying and stealing, and all the rest of that awful stuff that addicts do because of the obstructions that they face. Um, it takes a certain amount of cognitive coherence, clarity, and a lot of determination in order to keep going. But then it's also what we require to quit. And I'll, I, well, I also want to uh, uh, mention that free will is a, is a dodgy concept at best. We don't really understand free will. We have a, it's very difficult to understand what that is from a scientific perspective. We know from experiments in neuroscience and cognitive science that people make choices without having any idea what they're choosing, without being conscious of their choices. Their brains can predict what they're doing before, like 300 milliseconds, before they actually choose whether to press the right button or the left button in, in studies. Um, but uh, in a more pedestrian way of speaking about it, we, we don't know what, I mean, we make, we make hundreds, thousands of choices during the day, which are just almost unconscious, if not entirely unconscious. Um, the things that affect them are mood, previous choices, conditioning, associations, emotional state, fatigue. What, what determines whether you go through an orange light or stop? I mean, can you say what determines that choice? You just do it, you just do one or the other, and then you think about it. Um, and it's, that's the case not only with more trivial decisions, I don't know, in the Netherlands that's not so trivial, but here it may be. Um, but uh, it's also the case, I think, with rather important decisions. We, we might think about whether or not to raise a certain topic of discussion at the dinner table or with our teenage offspring or whatever it is, or with, ours, with, ours, with our partners. Um, which might lead to all kinds of consequences. And think about should I do it, should I not do it? You know, this is going to have a big impact one way or another. And we might decide, no, I'm not going to bring it up. It's going to be too messy. It's no. And then suddenly you do it just like that, yeah. Those are the kinds of choices in which immediate gains are weighed against long-term consequences, which people, which we think people make in a voluntary, logical way with this organ of choice. But in fact, that's not how we do it. We do it spontaneously. And I think that's similar with drug use. Um, As I said, willpower is not only very handy for getting drugs, it's also very handy for quitting drugs. In fact, I think it is the absolutely, uh, and I think anyone who's worked with addicts or been in addiction themselves knows this. It's that determination to quit. You might be sick of it, you might be disgusted with your own habit and so on and so forth. You might have learned to hate it in all kinds of ways and recognized how harmful it is. But it takes determination and willpower to resist the urge, to resist the cravings, and you have to keep that up for some period of time, and then you're done with it. Or else you're not done with it for good, maybe just for a while. But over a period of time, as I say, most people do quit and stay quit. Uh, effort, determination, willpower. I just I don't know what the difference is. So I, I disagree with that premise. So here's, here's the problem. you get this dichotomy. And this is the big deal in the US right now. It's either a disease or it's a choice. And of course, this dichotomy has come along partly out of very good intentions, not wanting addicts to be uh, stigmatized and mistreated and punished and secluded and abandoned because they're evil people or they're self-indulgent or weak and their character flawed, but rather because they have a disease. Well, obviously, that's that's a noble uh, intent. Yeah, but then the reason these people are not looking too miserable is because they're not being stigmatized. And yet the, uh, the state of not having a choice is obviously not optimal. I wouldn't like to not have a choice about doing irrational, harmful, self-destructive things on a regular basis. I would much rather have a choice. So is this dichotomy necessary? Is it helpful? And what do we do about it? Okay, so in other words, what do we say to the addict who comes for help, who comes for treatment? You have a chronic disease that you will never be free of. You have lost all control, and therefore you can't be blamed for your actions. People won't stigmatize you for being immoral, but they will stigmatize you as someone with a mental illness, forever different from normal people. Well, this is not small potatoes. It's been uh, a topic uh, in and out of public discourse for decades, partly the anti-psychiatry movement and all the rest of it, but we know both from anecdotal and from research evidence that people who are uh, identified as having a mental illness experience all kinds of stigma. I mean, if you're sitting down in a restaurant and um, there's someone over there with a mental illness, and you'd probably rather sit at the other end of the restaurant, even if there's an open window nearby, and it's the middle of winter. Um, it's because it's built in. The mental illness is built in. It's a part of your character. This is an essentialist notion, that you can't get rid of it. Uh, and this extends past the bounds of the addiction debate to all kinds of issues in psychiatry, which of course I won't get into in detail. Uh, but whether depression should be seen as an illness, even our approach in the West to psychosis and schizophrenia is not necessarily the only approach. In some cultures, psychotic episodes are not considered to be manifestations of a disease at all, but rather are considered to be cyclical way, changes in the way that you experience reality, uh, which left alone or respected or provided with uh, with useful uh, forms of social support actually go through some period of time and then go away, often for years before they re- recur. So, so having a mental illness, the idea of mental, of, of mental uh, diversity in terms of disease versus, versus normality has got all kinds of problems built into it. And then we say to this poor person, because you have a disease, you must seek treatment from medical authorities even though doctors don't actually know how to treat addiction. Now I, I, should, I should be clear, I like doctors a lot. My, my brother's a doctor. My father was a doctor. Um, Doctors certainly have their place in the treatment of addiction, but the question is do they have the tools to understand and fight the psychological processes that work in addiction or is their role different? And if their role is different, it may have to do only with things that people are addicted to that have that create chemical dependencies, obviously opioids being the prime example. Yes, you get a chemical dependency, you get withdrawal symptoms and you get all kinds of nastiness which makes the uh issue of quitting all the all that more complicated and difficult and actually rather horrific Um, and doctors obviously have a place there but most addictive drugs do not create chemical dependencies you can take methamphetamine crystal meth for 15 years and stop and have no withdrawal effects I mean, you might be pretty tired for a few days same with cocaine same with cracks same with all kinds of things same with alcohol use if it's heavy but moderate, unless you take large quantities of alcohol, there's not much of a withdrawal period. So this is a very specific you know, uh, subcategory of addictions for which medical treatment may be required. But as far as the psychology of addiction, doctors aren't trained in that. They're not trained to be psychologists. They've got enough to do. So in my books, in my talks, my articles, what I try to do is to understand how people become addicted. Um, As Richard explained, I I come from developmental psychology. I see things in terms of development, in terms of developmental change from childhood to adolescence through the lifespan. Um, And so I see addiction in terms of a developmental pathway which has particular stages to it. And I want to understand how people become addicted, in my books, Um, and how they grow beyond addiction. And uh, I I thought I'd read this just because, I get, I get hundreds, maybe thousands of emails like this, and I, this is not—I'm not trying to boast, but I'll just read it to you. Um, just bought *The Biology of Desire*, and on first chapter, the first few pages have brought tears to my eyes and had me yelling out loud, "Yes, yes!" In recognition, as a recovering addict, your book has given me more hope for my future than three and a half years of therapy and twelve-step meetings. I am told I have a chronic brain disease and my addiction is constantly waiting in the wings. My only hope to attend 12-step groups, pray, and confess my shortcomings to God. If I disagree, well, that is my addict, and often they call it my addict brain, um, tricking me with denial and rationalization. The solution, I must attend a weekend intensive, come to more sessions, buy another workbook, more 12-step meetings, 90 meetings in 90 days. I often feel shamed and condescended to by the very people who are telling me that shame is at the root of my addiction. People who only have a hammer and see all of my challenges as nails. People who I often feel are only a hair healthier than me, this idea of health. Many of their judgments seem routed in subjective morality, not science." I mean, this is obviously a self-selecting sample of people who send me emails, but I, I do talk to an awful lot of addicts who Uh, are really hate the disease label in all kinds of ways. And also the fusion between the disease label as it comes to us from medical and addiction authorities in the US and the 12-step movement. The 12-step movement, I'm sure you know it's been around for a long time, most of the 20th century. And there's been this kind of unholy marriage between the 12 steps um, and and the idea of addiction as the fundamental, essential disease. The idea being with the 12-step is that you have a a character flaw or uh, an allergy or something about yourself which is never going to go away, it's never going to change. And therefore you have to spend the rest of your life attempting to control it. And for a lot of people who've come through addiction, that's not how they feel and that's not what they want to be told. For one thing, they want to move on. I'm not an addict that has to control my impulses, I'm not that interested anymore. I don't like it anymore. I don't think about it anymore. People talk about that all the time. So I think we need to uh, be very cognizant of that, of those voices. As I say, I've talked to thousands of people who've lived through addiction, but I am still very interested in their brains, and and this is maybe something that is a little bit different from other people who might oppose the disease model. Um, so. Briefly, the contributions of the American NIH uh, authorities, funding bodies, and and so forth, and policy uh, uh, organizations. Um, The research, progress, in specifying neural changes underlying addiction, which are mainly sensitization of, sensitization of the nervous system to particular cues, particular stimuli. Blunting, giving way to blunting, which is a kind of uh, capping off of the level of enjoyment, which you, can, uh, uh, which you can feel in relation to other rewards, but also even in relation to the thing that you happen to be addicted to. Um, motivation by contextual cues, the way cues can chain together to lead to an addictive response and all that stuff. Conditioning and automatic compulsive behaviors. This is a big deal and people in addiction science often talk about the shift between impulsive responding, which you get in early stages of addiction, which is, I want it, um, to the later stages of addiction when you you just do it. You don't think about, it's no longer motivated by reinforcement. It's no longer motivated by an expectation that this will be nice. It's just something you have to do, like an OCD, okay? And all of these things are explained by changes in dopamine circuitry. Dopamine comes up from the midbrain, goes to the striatum, which is the kind of motivational center of the the brain, um, uh, which has different components and parts that that basically execute behavioral sequences in different ways. It's got a southern pole, which is in charge of impulsive behavior, the ventral striatum, and it's got a, a northern region, the dorsal striatum, which is in charge of automatic Pavlovian behavior. And you actually see changes in the way dopamine interacts with these systems. Changes in the circuitry, of course, because all active synapses uh, will affect changes in synaptic networks. And also um, the changes in the relation between the striatum and the prefrontal cortex, The obviously the seat of our capacity to steer and to, to make judgments and think about the future. So that's all really good stuff. and. Um, Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. let's not throw the brain out with the bathwater. I think that we need to pay a lot of attention to these neural changes but I don't see them in terms of pathology. I see them in terms of developmental progression. So what what I um, what I would like to see is is a to for for experts to combine neural findings with other forms of data. So you've got the neural findings, changes in dopamine circuitry, reduction in prefrontal activation, the neurobiology of stimulus response, that that automatic behavioral response that I mentioned. Look at that stuff, but also use developmental psychology, study normative stages. As Richard said, addiction starts in adolescence. That's very significant. And look at individual pathways. What kinds of events predict particular futures? Look at risk and resilience. Look at risk and uh, protective factors. These are all things that developmental psychologists have been working on for many decades. And that's a really important part of the picture. And it doesn't jive that well with the disease theory of addiction. And third, lived experience. You know, the the people who... um, People who crunch numbers looking at fMRI uh, images and, and crunch numbers and so forth and come up with findings about brain changes and addiction, uh, many of them have never met an addict, a real addict, have ta- or, or certainly have not talked with them about what it's like and that's not their fault. They're very busy doing the things that neuroscientists do but there's a huge amount of information available from subjective accounts from memoirs. Addiction memoirs are great reading by the way, well there's mine which of course is great reading, uh, but there's, there's many others, and they're fascinating, dramatic, uh, um, what's the word, uh, epic, epic stories, um, which very often end with, with, uh, with people getting out of addiction. Not always, but often. There's a lot of data there, and I think that these three pillars, these three pillars of, of, uh, of knowledge, need to be combined to get, really get down and understand what addiction's all about. Okay, so instead of a brain disease, I would think of addiction as a habit of thinking, feeling, and acting that develops in response to social and emotional challenges. So I'm just going to spend about 10 minutes giving you a kind of a taste or flavor of a learning model of addiction, which is different from a disease model of addiction. That's supposed to that diagram. I've used it in a lot of classes. Is supposed to indicate the many, many paths, developmental paths, leading from birth to death, I guess, or whatever. Um, and the, what I often emphasize is the the choice points, the branchings in the path. I mean, we can all look back on our on our lives and identify points at which we could have gone one way or could have gone another way. I can identify exactly when I got into bad drugs. When I Got from, went from a, a repressive boarding school in New England to Berkeley, California in 1968. Um, it was like, okay, this is for me. Um, but there were other choices and other paths and other places I could have ended up. And there were many other choice points on the, on the way. And I think it's really useful to analyze what happens at these choice points and what kind of factors influence developmental trajectories. Not just whether or not you become Addicted to something. It's the kind of thing you become addicted to, whether you develop a narrow social organization or group that supports that addiction or works against it, whether you get treated with abuse and uh, stigmatization and uh, punishment on the one hand versus care and connection on the other hand, all affect the branchings in the developmental pathway. So, um, so speaking of development, let's start at the beginning. Uh, the ACE scores, these are, this is a, a large survey, um, several waves of survey research, I, at least, I'm not sure, lots and lots of participants. I think it was 17,000, but I can't remember. Um, and the ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And, and just to, to cut to the chase, So we're talking now about abuse, which could be physical, emotional or sexual. We're talking about neglect, parental divorce, which doesn't have to be aversive, but it can be, maternal depression, having a parent in prison, uh, parental alcoholism. There's about 10 of these factors. And the more you have in your childhood, in your childhood or adolescence, the greater your chances are of becoming an alcoholic or an injected drug user. These are undisputed facts, and the comorbidity, so to speak, between PTSD and addiction is huge, somewhere around 80%. All all of these things, we could say they leave in their wake some form of PTSD or depression or anxiety, which are all really very often overlapping categories. So so there's a developmental precursor for you, or a set of developmental precursors. Um, So what happens then? And this is my little cartoon. For We know a lot about learning. Uh, we know about operant conditioning, we know about Pavlovian conditioning, we know about the use of inhibitory mechanisms, uh, and planning, and sequencing, and rule use, and all of these factors in learning, psychologists study all this stuff. And we know about the neural uh, correlates, the neural manifestations of most of these forms of learning as well. What we often don't think about or don't study is the cyclical nature of learning. So there are particular kinds of learning that involve, as I say, repeated exposure, repeated action, repeated doing, which means repeated stimuli, repeated responses, and so on and so, on, so forth. And those are the kinds of behaviors that are going to build in neural changes much more deeply in a much more entrenched, ongoing fashion than things that we indulge in on a more occasional basis. I think that's pretty obvious. But what is this kind of cyclical pattern? What drives it? What's, what's the actual sort of chemistry of it? chemistry in a metaphorical sense. Um, think about wanting and, and getting. I mean, if you want pizza, you're going to think about you know the different places where you might be able to order it, or you might be able to drive out and get it. And the more you think about the different pizzas and the different varieties, the more you want it. The more you want it, the more you think about different ways of getting it, and so on and so forth. So there's a little feedback cycle just built in to the middle of it. And then eventually you go out and you get the thing that you want, whether it's pizza, or whether it's sex, or whether it's heroin, or whether it's, uh, you know, a college education, or what I suppose, and um, things that can be satisfying for a shorter or longer period of time. Um, and that wanting is driven by emotional needs of one kind or another, obviously, otherwise you wouldn't be wanting. And the problem is that the various solutions that we have for our desires and our needs are temporary in one way or another. Or they lead to different kinds of outcomes or futures and with addiction the problem is that the rewards the satisfaction of the desire the craving the satisfaction of the need is so very temporary and whether you're talking well, for cocaine it's about 15 minutes uh, for gambling it could be the three or four hours that you spend at the casino for heroin it's about six or seven hours for et cetera, et cetera you know what i'm saying but after that you feel like shit because you've engaged in something that has gone away completely and left you with nothing. And it's also something you know you weren't supposed to do and you know it was going to leave you in a worse uh, state than you started. And you feel some, besides the loss of the thing itself, you also feel some shame or self-recrimination about having gone out and done it in the first place. So what you're doing is you're increasing the emotional need that drives the feedback cycle. And that's what they sometimes call that's what George Koob calls the dark side of addiction although he confuses that with withdrawal symptoms in my opinion okay so that's why addiction is a self-perpetuating self-reinforcing process well so are some other things like language learning and maybe you know um, becoming an athlete I mean there's certain things that we keep doing Uh, because they're reinforcing and they get us to do it again and then we get very good at it, we get very skilled, we develop a very particular set of skills. And believe me, addicts have a very particular set of skills. But the problem is that they're being driven not only by the satisfaction of the need or the desire, but also by the loss that they've encountered through this extremely ephemeral reinforcement. And that's why being an addict isn't fun, it's not fun at all. So um, here's a little, psychologist love you know, boxes and arrows, um, here's a little learning model that might explain addiction in it, from a developmental perspective. You've got the trigger, or the cue, which could be a phone number, a half a pill on the bathroom floor. It could be passing the liquor store on your way home from work. It could be uh, a phone call from a buddy, whatever it is, anything. Which, which leads to craving, which is a state of emotional wanting, desire, which leads to imagining, thinking about ways to get it or to do it, um, which leads to, um, which increases the salience of the desire, the salience of the cues. The cues are psychological as well as perceptual. The cues are in there, right? And their salience is increased by thinking about doing it. So that goes on for a while and whether it's a few minutes or a few hours, and we can call that an intensification phase. And then eventually you go and you do it, you know, and you get it, unless you don't do it. But if you do do it, you do it. And then you get some relief and you get learning because that's simply operant conditioning, that's operant learning based on a reinforcement. Um, And then you get loss. Okay, and as I mentioned, loss, that kind of loss, and especially that loss mixed with shame is part of the driver for for, uh, repeating the cycle. So if that cycle goes on every day or every couple of days, week after week, month after month, year after year, um, you are developing a very powerful habit. And most of what we do is habitual. I think most of us know that if we think about it. Almost everything we do is habitual. But uh, this particular habit becomes more and more refined and entrenched and concretized and so on and so forth. And it's just a developmental habit, although it's an extremely nasty one. So we can just call that development. Or we can call it sensitization. Incentive sensitization, Berge, uh, Robinson and barrage This is this sensitization to particular cues and other potential rewards reinforcers uh, start to fall off the radar. Right. So, so that's kind of the developmental picture. That's the way I would put it. What about the brain? Well, this is going on in your mind. What's going on in your brain? Well, it's really hard. To, to show uh, synaptic changes on a PowerPoint slide. Uh, I've tried different ways, but I, I found this one recently. Um, I, I don't know how many of you know, people often think of development as a, as a growth of synapses, increase increasing synapses. In fact, the developmental progression is, goes in the opposite direction. Uh, young infants and young children have an overabundance of synapses, which are gradually pruned with development. Um, And what that pruning does is it strengthens the, uh, it reinforces, it strengthens the synapses that are used, that are in use, to achieve certain goals, and it prunes the other synapses. So you get rid of the synapses you don't need. And I I always compare this to um, changes in a community where, in, in childhood, you've got a bunch of dirt roads leading from one dwelling to the next. And over time, they're replaced by streets, but there are also lots of little streets. And then over time, those streets are replaced by main streets, and some of the little streets go away. And then after a while, the main streets are replaced by highways and then freeways, and so on and so forth. So you get more and more efficiency in the brain by dint of pruning away the unnecessary synapses. And of course, that's what creates habits. That is habit formation in the brain. So every time you go through the cycle of seeking and getting and relief and learning and wanting and needing and doing it again, every time you go through it, you are making synaptic alterations all over the brain, especially for our purposes in the striatum and the prefrontal cortex and many other, and in the amygdala and many other areas as well. Um, So see if this gives you an idea. Pruning, pruning the unneeded synapses until you have a superhighway and that's your habit that's your habit and that's why it's so difficult to change and that's one reason why neuroscience is such an important addition to the way we think about addiction because I don't want to say that addicts don't have a choice and I don't want to say that they can't stop I know that that's not true but I do want to say that it's hard to stop and why is it so hard why can't you just wake up one day and say enough of this well because you have a highly entrenched, ingrained habit, which is manifested through synaptic configurations that you have built up over at least months and quite possibly years or decades. That means the change isn't easy. So that's one of the really important lessons that neuroscience can can uh, provide for the understanding of addiction and recovery. Uh, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to go for a full hour, um, but I'm gonna I'm going to go for a few more minutes. And I kind of like this particular slide. This, What this shows you is um, these are changes in GM volume, gray matter volume, on the y-axis and years of use on the x-axis. And this line represents, this is a regression line uh, showing gray matter volume, which means the density of synapses huh? Um, for people taking alcohol, cocaine, or heroin, where's my, f- there it is, alcohol, cocaine, or heroin, for five, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, what you see is a reduction in gray matter volume in very particular regions of the prefrontal cortex or the regions between the striatum, kind of on the pathway between the striatum and the prefrontal cortex, okay? You get this loss of, of gray matter. Uh, With years of use and there's the population baseline people who've never taken drugs Well people who take a disease orientation including NeuroVocal and all the folks at NIDA and all that They look at these things and they say well obviously there's a disease going on you're losing your brain, right? You're losing your gray matter, but what if you think about those changes in terms of pruning in terms of developmental pruning? It's a whole different perspective If you think of it as a developmental process involving pruning, then what you're thinking is that you are getting more and more efficient, if you like, more skilled at being an addict. And you don't need as many synapses in those regions for making choices and judgment and thinking about the future, partly because you're not making choices and judgments and thinking about the future. You know what you're going to do today, the same thing you did yesterday. Which is not a a particularly wonderful way to live, but it is a way to live. So if we think of these changes uh, in terms of pruning, that the loss of synapses is not the end of the story. And we ought to see in recovery further synaptic alteration. And in this particular study, we do. So what this shows is that people who have been abstinent from alcohol, cocaine, and heroin for a period of 20 to 40 to 60 to 80 weeks there is an increase in synaptic density in very similar regions, not precisely the same regions, but uh, I'm not sure if that matters. And, And what's most interesting here is that you get increasing synaptic density that goes beyond the population baseline for people who have become abstinent. I'm not saying that abstinence is the only way out of addiction. It's certainly one way. It's a pretty good way, but it's not the only way. Um, but what's happening there, it's just a matter of speculation, I, I've talked with the senior author and, of the study and uh, we both like to speculate that what's going on is that the people are developing new mechanisms for emotion regulation, they're developing new skills for self-control. Well that takes work and it takes building up new synaptic pathways. And what I expect would then happen eventually as those become streamlined, and entrenched, is you're going to get then synaptic pruning again. And part of that synaptic pruning ought to be the uh, uh, no longer thinking about drugs, or booze, or porn, or whatever it is, or gambling. No longer thinking about that as a resolution to your needs, to your depression, to your anxiety, to your discomfort. It just starts to go by the wayside if you stop thinking about it. Okay, so, conclusions. Severe addiction is like a disease in many ways. The idea that addicts need help, not punishment, has been championed by the disease approach by NIDA and other uh, um, organizations in the US and elsewhere. And that's been great. That's a step forward, but it doesn't have to be the last step. This can be a step on an evolutionary pathway in how we understand addiction. Okay, so the problem. Again, neurobiological change does not equal pathology. That's one way of looking at it. Neurobiological change can also be understood completely from a developmental perspective. So, I think we need to use insights from neurobiology to help understand developmental processes that lead to negative outcomes, including addiction, of course, and and others as well. And we also have to pay close attention to social processes and societal resources. I think that's pretty obvious to anyone who's thought about it is these things are not happening in a vacuum. Um, the people's thoughts and feelings and habits and, and synaptic uh, uh, pattern formation are all happening within an intensely powerful social matrix. Yeah. So those kinds of things uh, I think are, we, we recognize them as a kind of a common sense way of understanding the problems that people have in addiction. But I think that they work better with a developmental approach than they do with the with with disease notion. Because you can't really necessarily get rid of a disease by changing the social context. But you can alter a developmental pathway very much by changing social and societal elements. Okay, so, ah, but still you may ask, <laughs> even if you've taken what I've said so far, as being reasonably legitimate, you they ask, how will addicts get the help they need? And this is a big deal, and it's especially a big deal in the US, and I recognize this. When I was in Long Island a couple, a couple weeks ago giving a talk, and uh, okay, so I wanna, I wanna bash the disease model, and that's good for me, um, but there's all these opioid addicts out there who need Suboxone and Methadone. And if they don't get it, they're very likely to go to the street and get heroin instead. And that heroin is quite likely to be laced with fentanyl or many, its many analogs. And therefore, they're likely to die. So we need to have resources available for them. So there's obviously a strong argument for having some kind of resources available. But, but other than that particular situation, what we offer, the kind of help that we offer addicts, In disease-oriented rehabs and treatment centers is often really not very effective. We've got medical personnel who don't have psychological tools, who don't have expertise in psychology, social work, uh, mindfulness meditation, training, uh, all kinds of things that can really help people change the way people uh, 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 connect with their lives. 85% 85% of these rehabs and treatment centers still rely on 12-step methods. Again, that sort of unholy marriage between the disease concept and the idea that there's this fundamental flaw in one's makeup that will never go away. Okay, And they're not very effective, by the way. AA is useful for some people, but it's a pretty small percentage. It's something like 5-8%. to 8%. Poor outcomes. Everybody knows that if they've been involved in any way with rehabs and treatment centers. It's a revolving door. People go back Two to ten to even fifteen times, uh, they cost a lot of money. Sometimes anywhere up to a hundred thousand, even a hundred and fifty thousand a month, a month. You know, and if they don't work very well, that's not very good use of your family's uh, resources. Um, and it's driven; it's a high-profit industry. There's, I mean, a lot of pariahs and really nasty stuff going on. If you're interested in learning about it. High profit. It's a quick fi- It's driven by a quick fix insurance industry that wants to get the most bang for its buck. And therefore, you're in for thirty days and then out and back in your lonely little apartment in you know downtown Pittsburgh or whatever. You're very likely to start using again. So, it's just not a very effective uh, treatment system as it stands. Um, so I couldn't resist including this slide. I, I saw this in an airport in Australia. I'm not just a GP. I'm your specialist in life. Well, no, you're not. (laughs) You're, You're not necessarily a specialist in life. You're a specialist when it comes to physiological, physical problems, bodily problems, of course. But you're not a specialist in everything. And I think most doctors realize that. So doctors may not necessarily belong on the front line, although they're a very important adjunct, especially when it comes to addictions that involve chemical dependency, like opioid addiction. Okay. So then my final kind of, this may be my last slide. Um, What kind of approach should we take? What kind of thinking should we use to think about how to change the way we deal with addiction as a society? Well, how do we try to fix society's other serious problems? Racism, bullying, domestic violence, poor parenting, teen pregnancy, loneliness, for example, in old age. I'm sure you can see the list can go on and on. These are serious problems. Governments, uh, uh, public health organizations, networks, social um, neighborhood organizations, all, all of these sorts of sources have thrown a lot of energy and money at these kinds of problems. But they don't call them diseases. We don't have to call something a disease in order to get really serious about trying to fix it. So I want to leave you with that idea. We don't have to call something a disease in order to throw money at it and to build in resources for changing it and fixing it. And by the way, these social problems have a lot of resemblance to addiction. They all involve entrenched cognitive habits. They all involve poor emotion regulation. They all involve some kind of entrenched belief like addiction, um, those are pretty much psychological issues. And so I think that the ways that we try to deal with these issues are through community resources, uh, counseling and psychotherapy, to be sure. Um, I would also include mindfulness meditation training. It's been found to be quite effective for helping people with addiction at least as effective as any other psychological tool, like motivational interviewing or CBT or any of the rest of it. It's really learning how to meditate can be pretty powerful. Um, social support, family, friends, community, etc., and uh, education. And I think education is really critical and should start early in elementary school. As I say, being an addict is not fun. Kids don't want to become addicts. And if you help give them the tools to recognize when they're starting to move in directions that might lead to addiction, they will steer away from it if they possibly can. There's been a lot of... You should read the book Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari, great book about Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs. And one of the things he does is reviews how other societies have dealt with the problem of drug addiction. Portugal's a great example. They had a 1% heroin use statistic. 1% of the population were using heroin. Um, uh, That was about 13 years ago. And then they called in a whole bunch of experts and said, what should we do about this problem? And the first thing they said was decriminalize it. Really? Seriously? Decriminalize it? Yeah. So it was decriminalized. People were no longer thrown in jail for using it or for selling it. And what they were done, what was done instead, was that they, there was mandatory counseling or psychotherapy of some sort. And um, other, other policies, taking away the driver's licenses of people's, people who continue to use and so on and so forth. But the main way of, of reversing the tide of addiction to heroin came actually through the school system. High school kids talking to each other about, yes, heroin is available, but you'd be an idiot to go that way. You don't want to go that way. And it was a matter of discussion and a matter of thinking and feeling, you know, what are the other alternatives and who's at risk and how can we help them. And so I just think education and taking advantage of the uh, instincts and, and, and potentials of young people can, can, can be hugely, uh, hugely helpful. And that's it. Thank you.
2: everybody, uh, I'm Nesima A. Dowd, and actually I'm a psychiatrist, an MD, um, a, uh, and an addiction specialist who spent the past 20 years um, working with addicts actually, not behind uh, screens, and um, uh, learning about it. A lot of my research has been on addiction, um, and it's, I, I hope that, uh, Mark, you don't feel like you're in line, um, uh, wh- I hope you don't feel that the US is actually closed up to any theory that. We do love uh, to learn from one another. I think one of the theory in the US is that um, there are different approach to treating addictions and there is no one that's going to fit everybody and that we have to open our minds and we have to to allow different uh, ways of treating addiction. I did uh, participate in a lot of NIDA grant reviews and I have to say that there are a lot of psychologists over there that actually MDs are not uh, uh, too often represented and that there is even an effort to try to promote f- physicians because there are actually a lot of more psychologists than physicians in up. So uh, my job today is actually to go and say that, you no, know, actually addiction is a brain disease. So forget everything that Mark just told you and actually uh, addiction is a brain disease. Um, and uh, you know, although I, I really enjoyed uh, your presentation and uh, a lot of the times we're not going to disagree, we're going to agree, it's just uh, sometimes it may be semantic and We'll, we'll have to, to leave it to that. So, um, figure out how to move things. So um, I put this picture here um, uh, because, you know, and it's perfect because Mark showed that picture of beautiful people with addiction and saying, we hope that uh, there is no stigma, there is a stigma. They do trigger strong reaction in us. Uh, we do have strong reaction when um, um, we see patients uh, who come in the ED, they're usually Island. They usually cursing at us. They usually rejecting um, um, our help. Uh, so the, the, it it does trigger a strong uh, um, reaction in people: physicians, psychologists, providers, family members. And uh, what when we say that addiction is not a choice? I don't know that we're saying that people don't have a choice to go use a drug or alcohol. I think that the way I see it is that. Nobody's born saying, you know what? When I grew up, I choose to be an addict because and I think that's a cool thing. Um, is it, people go into it uh, not wanting to be an addict, not wanting to have addiction, but they do get into it. So because we're talking about disease and disorder or uh, is it a brain disease, I, did wanna, uh, I didn't wanna put the definitions actually by uh, the uh, medical uh, dictionary is whether a disease is. Disease uh, results from a, a pathophysiological response to external and internal factors. A lot of times people see disease as an external, something that caused our body to change, something that caused our brain to change that is it's external. And disease is often construed as a medical condition associated with specific symptoms and signs. It may be caused by external factors or by internal dysfunction. Uh, it's the highest level of conceptual understanding. is when we really know, when you put that factor, you put it in the body, it causes that. We know that's a disease. Disorder is a little bit more, um, not as clear, and it's a disruption of the disease uh, to the normal or regular function in the body or part of the body. So this definition, look at it, is that you can still have a disease. You have a disease and then the disorder is the, the, the things that the disease can cause, or it could be just a, a, a dysfunctional a, a functional problem that you may have. It's considered value-neutral and less stigmatizing than the term "disease," and therefore is a preferred terminology in some situations. In mental health, for example, the term "mental disorder" is used by as a way of acknowledging the complex interaction of biological, social, and psychological factors in psychiatric conditions. Again, disease and disorder—you can't—you you don't have one or the other. You can have both. But so Mark talked about impulsivity and compulsion, and and I do want to talk about it briefly. Is that a lot of times uh, when uh, drugs or even a behavior, even gambling or, or sex or uh, uh, porn is started, there is an impulse need to it. When we talk impulsivity, is that, there is that you, you, you do it and there is gratification, there is a reward in the beginning and then with time, it becomes a compulsive need. There is this uh, anxiety and stress before committing and you need to do it repetitively to relieve that stress. So in the beginning it was reward and then it became stress. Um, I know Mark talked a lot about dopamine, and, um, and dopamine is big in, in uh, addiction, but we do know that in the brain model, in the uh, disease model, uh, dopamine is not the only, uh, actually neurotransmitter, is, is, uh, it's not the most important one. But so drug use progression, what we've learned is that drug-taking behavior, and you'll see that I say drug-taking, you know, it could be replaced by behavioral uh, uh, addiction. Drug-taking behavior progressed from impulsivity to compulsivity in three stages. There is, uh, and that's, uh, you're, you're familiar with that, that's NIDA, uh, Nora Volko, uh, big thing, and now even CUB. Um, so there's a binge, um, where there's positive reinforcement people use because they really get high from it. Um, and then they try to stop, there is a withdrawal, negative effect, and they don't like it. And then they use again, and eventually uh, there is changes that causes people to have this. They're always uh, preoccupied with it, anticipating to use, and it becomes really a negative reinforcement because people are trying to move away from uh, the negative emotion if they don't use. So, um, is there? Oh, okay. So, why am I interested in in, uh, in addiction being a brain disease? Because in addiction. I feel that there was so much research that was done that we were able to identify circuitry in the brain that uh, are associated with the different stages of uh, addiction. The binge, the withdrawal, the preoccupation. Is it? Are they solely responsible for just addiction? No, they're part of a different function. But what's really exciting about addiction is that it's the same model that was actually uh, um, identified in animals that we were able to see it in humans, and that's pretty exciting. Is that you know we, we take rats, we feed them cocaine or alcohol, cut their brain, slice their brain, freeze their brain, do anything, and we're able to identify areas. But then uh, with uh, with the development of neuroimaging, we were able to see that the same area that we were uh, we identified in animals was also uh, affected with addiction. Um, so, and I'll go really slowly through that. I won't bore you, but the binge intoxication—that's where the dopamine release is actually causes the high. I know you talked about sex and love and food and you know doing all these fun things, but for things to be addictive, there has to be a steep increase in dopamine. It's not anything. When I take a shower in the morning, I do get a dopamine release. I do feel pleasure, but it's not addictive. I don't know that anybody has been addicted to showering, although it wouldn't be bad. But it's really that fast and steep increase in dopamine that really makes a difference. And not everything will cause it. And the the more dopamine release there is, the more likely that this, um, that drug or that behavior is gonna cause uh, addiction. Um, then there is a compulsive phase. So these incentive salience, um, really, when we drive motivation and reward from these behavior, um, you, you know, what, what happens is that that, that dopamine release uh, that was induced by drug administration activate some of the area of the brain that are exactly the same area that we see in OCD. So everybody understand that when somebody has OCD and has, you know, problems with germs, and they have thoughts that their hands are dirty and then they go wash them a hundred times until their skin uh, 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 falls off. Nobody has problems understanding that they really, it's really hard for them. You can tell them, they have a choice. You can tell them, you know what? You know you don't have germs in your hands. You know that you just wash your hands a hundred times. You could stop. Yes, they could stop, but they will do it to the point that it will bleed. And that's, that's the difference. That's the compulsive uh, n- uh, nature of of addiction when I work with uh, with patients um, I had a patient that told me is that it's I, I hate myself because when I go get my check and I have my check and I look at my kids and I look at their eyes and I know I need to get, get diapers for them and I still look at them in the eyes and leave and go get my heroin and I hate myself for that but I can't do it and help me how I could uh, help me stop it um, <laughs> So uh, the, uh, so that was the dopamine in the beginning. And uh, what we know is that um, later, as they continue to use, the uh, prefrontal cortex is actually affected and that becomes uh, more of glutamate and other things. And pre- prefrontal cortex is really where we uh, make executive function, we decision, you know, we, uh, should, we, should we go buy a diaper, should I go um, uh, get my drugs? Uh, it really affects uh, again self regulation, inhibitory control, work and memory, decision making, a lot of things, and, and that is affected uh, later. So, we know that genetic, environmental, social factors contribute to the determination of person unique susceptibility to using drugs. Not everybody who's going to be uh, taking drugs will develop it, and there is a lot of research that is looking into who will develop it, what are the factors, what are some of the things that could be done to, to avoid it. So yes, there are you know there, there are, uh, childhood trauma, there are multiple factors happening, there is um, a learned thing, but all that, when it affects the brain, it causes a disease state. The reason why I say it causes a disease state, because it's the same pathways that we see in animals, that if If uh, uh, stimulated by the drug, would cause exactly the same behavior over and over. Um, Again, relevance to behavioral addictive disorder. We found we 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 couldn't get animals to to uh, gamble. We couldn't get animals to uh, do porn. So we don't have a good model for that. But uh, when we looked, when we did neuroimaging with uh, humans, we found similar similarities between uh, drug addiction and uh, behavioral addictive disorders. So. This is, um, this, this, uh, I like to put this here because it really goes against the theories that it's a developmental disorder, that it is something that we learn, that it's childhood trauma, that it's PTSD, that it will put somebody at risk for addiction. I think uh, the opioid epidemic has shown us differently. I work a lot with women who um, had never had an addiction problem, uh, get pregnant, go to deliver, Uh, get a c-section, the uh, OBGYN give them some uh, opioid, release them on opioid, and before they know they're addicted to opioid. Nothing in their childhood, nothing during their adolescence, uh, yet they develop it. So, um, and this is another way of looking at it, is these are people uh, who um, had no addiction and developed Parkinson's disease later in their uh, their life and Treatment of Parkinson's disease is a dopamine agonist, which is really in that work in that dopamine area, and um, feels like um, you know you're doing drugs. But people who are given Parkinson drugs uh, developed pathological gambling, hypersexuality, and compulsive shopping, and uh, on people who never had it. So really, you take this this circuit that we know is responsible. We see it in animals, we see it in humans. And then when we manipulate it by giving, even to people who don't have a history of addiction, and we give them uh, drugs that will uh, affect that area, they develop behavioral addiction that they've never experienced before. So that's, that's a, 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 one of the things that I found it to be really um, um, amazing, it's, and it really gives us an idea of what this circuitry is able to do. So, Addiction is a chronic brain disease uh, with multiple etiological sources, all resulting in measurable changes in the brain, function, morphology, and consistent symptomatology. The aberrant impulsive and compulsive behavior that are characteristic of addiction have nowhere else been so clearly tied up to neurobiology like an addiction. Yes, we talk about biology and depression. Yes, we talk about biology and schizophrenia, but nowhere else has it been so well identified than it is an addiction. I feel that uh, addiction has owned it. I I, um, I feel that calling it a disease it doesn't take away people's choice. I mean we have choices. We do never say that to the OCD patient you don't have a choice uh, to wash in your hands. Um, it doesn't. Uh, it does open doors to new ways of uh, looking at treatment. Um, I like to think of treatment as a treatment is a multi-disciplinary. Uh, I you know I I wanna. I want to correct you uh, in thinking that all physicians or physicians you know are just these people who are like okay how can i give you drugs um, as psychiatrists we're trained in psychology we trained in mindfulness we trained in cbt in mi i mean we train in everything so when we treat our patient we do a little bit of everything um, i also uh, do want to correct that um, uh, residential treatment are you know some of them are money making Though um, the residential treatment that I work with uh, use mindfulness, CBT, MI, they do 12 steps, that's for sure, but it is not one cookie cutter for for all. So again, um, because I feel that addiction has made so much progress, has identified so many things, and that there is a consistency in symptomatology that has not been seen anywhere else, I do believe that addiction is brain disease. Thank you.
0: Um, so I think, Mark, do you, or uh, any of the points that Naseema just made that uh, you want to comment on before we open this up? Sure. I don't want to spend a long time
1: refuting, uh, but uh, when you talk about the incredible identification of circuitry which we see with addiction, sure, society has put a huge amount of resources into identifying set of changes go with addiction because it's such a serious social problem. Um, But that doesn't, the fact that we have identified some of the neural changes doesn't mean those neural changes uh, bequeath uh, pathology. We also, there are a whole bunch of neural changes that go on in adolescence, for example, or in uh, religious conversion, or in all kinds of other things, which um, can be identified maybe not with the same precision, because it hasn't been such an important societal agenda. But um, the, the, the whole point of my talk was that neural changes does not mean disease. So, and as far as the steep rise in dopamine as to you know between the shower and the cocaine, NIDA, I think, has been irresponsible of not differentiating the, the dopamine that you get from psychostimulants from the dopamine that you get from your own award system they just never managed to do that. But they show these really classy fMRI slides with big red and yellow splotches. Based on psychostimulant drugs, the implication is that that's part product of the disease. No, it's a product of the psychostimulant that actually keeps I,
2: it. I have it's
1: to dope, that. dopamine synapses. So actually,
2: to... yeah. yes, is? So actually there is research that quantified the dopamine release, and what they found is that when you use cocaine, it releases 10 times more dopamine than sexual act. When you use methamphetamine, it releases 100 times more uh, dopamine than sexual act. So yeah. the, there is interesting. We're not, I don't think they're putting everything into one bag and saying it's the same thing. But that's Yes, so what?
1: Some drugs put more dopamine in yeah. your synapses, hold on. Yeah. And you said the same thing, it's the case with parkinsonian drugs, so and that's true. Um, what does that prove?
2: It doesn't prove, what it proves is that uh, with some of these drugs that have released dopamine in such a way uh, with continuous use in certain people uh, there will be some uh, changes in the brain that will uh, you know, cause the compulsive use um, that if we are able to really um, target some of the areas of the brain whether it's through psychotherapy or whether it's through medication Would be able to provide
1: help to the patient who's struggling. Yeah, so if you jack up the system with tons of dopamine, which you can get a lot of from psychostimulants, then yes, that will accelerate particular changes. Now, with other drugs of abuse, like heroin, for example, you don't get nearly the same dopamine profile. And in fact, um, in in a number of studies have shown that you get actually no change in dopamine uptake unless the subject is actually pursuing heroin in other words, if, they're being, if it's being administered without their will, without their voluntary triggering of the act, they don't get any dopamine. So it has to do, so in other words, dopamine is a natural way of responding to attractive rewards. But, of course, you can enhance it with chemicals. Uh-huh. So what? I mean, you can also enhance serotonin with other chemicals
2: and antidepressants. So what? So there's a risk for addiction. What? So if you enhance your dopamine release,
1: Uh, There is risk for addiction. Yeah, there's a risk for addiction. There's also a risk for uninhibited sexual behavior, which is not necessarily an addiction at all. In fact, in one one of the case uh, studies, um, a guy on um, uh, um, anti-partisanian drugs uh, started to show gay lovers and had been heterosexual for his whole life. So in other words, people will move more assertively for quickly, saliently into all kinds of acts that they might not have considered because there's more dopamine in their system. But so what? What does that say about addiction? What, in what it
2: says is that the prefrontal cortex has been affected and changed so that the decision making is changing. So the person who's moved to you know gay you know, uh, sexuality may have had it before and had made the decision not to use to do that, but then with priming the system multiple times, the prefrontal cortex that's making decisions has has changed, has shifted.
1: I, I think we're going around in circles. Yeah, and we both recognize that dopamine enhances particular yeah. behavioral acquisition strategies and impulses and impulsivity. Um, you can get dopamine from your own ventral uh, tegmental area, from your brains from your own midbrain, or you can get it from drugs what it does is enhances certain attractive behaviors.
2: But not at the same level, that's the difference. Also, it, there are implications for treatment. So uh, OCD has developed really the great development in OCD where now we can do neurosurgery to treat OCD using gamma knife. We know that there are some pathways in the brain that are uh, overly uh, activated in OCD to the point that people are bleeding in their hands. Yeah. So we can do a gamma knife and cut those some of these uh, these pathways without even having to open the skull. And people, recover from OCD, it's amazing. So I'd like to think that we haven't seen yet the limit of what we can do to help people with addiction.
1: Yeah, I don't know the research you're talking about, I know the brain, deep brain stimulation for OCD and other things, so you make this results. But look, any psychological or behavioral state or condition or difference is going to correspond with some neural behavioral state or condition. I mean, I just take that as a given. And the fact that you see it in both humans and, and rodents, for so what? In all mammals. I, I still see the power of that argument. So, what, what is the, the power of your argument? Is that, that it's learned behavior? Yes. Oh, yeah. In your
2: yeah, but learned <laughs> behavior has um, neurobiological changes, right? Oh,
1: yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh,
2: yeah. And the, the infant
1: brain and the adult brain, look, it, it's a hugely different.
2: But your, uh, your theory is that uh, we develop addiction is a developmental thing, and I'm telling you that it's not true for everybody, that there are cases, or there are a lot of cases with addiction. Absolutely. Where,
1: There's no developmental thing that is the same for everybody. That's, that's why that diagram of multiple differentiated yeah. pathways is what, what I try to use to yeah. indicate that. Look, there are individual differences in everything, and certainly in development, all we have to do is look around us to recognize that there are huge individual differences. So, what? Uh, yeah. Again. Um, so, so,
2: again, I don't know that we're saying the opposite thing, and that's why I'm a little confused. So, we're saying, what I'm saying is that, yes, there are multiple ways of getting into addiction, multiple ways, mm-hmm. right? So you could be tied to a chair, and, and somebody's pushing heroin, and you'll into you every day you will develop an addiction. No, you won't. Develop. So no, you, you will develop, develop de- addiction, No, right. you will
1: develop chemical dependence.
2: Yes, and then eventually you will you will develop addiction. No, that is, ah. not, that is not the case. So we'll have to agree to disagree here. So uh, with the brain disease, there will be multiple ways of getting there. So what I'm saying is that what we know is there's a set, really well-defined mm-hmm. circuitry that is Uh, affected in addiction and when that is affected we have the same symptomatology whether you go to china wherever you go when that circuitry is activated we see the same symptomatology over and over and that's that's the definition of the disease
1: when people have sex you get very specific changes in the testosterone system the dopamine system uh, the uh, oxytocin system. You do, but Some you don't do it to the, the point that you disease. have
2: negative consequences and still maintain it. Well, you don't become homeless so you can have sex. Yeah, but that's,
1: that's, a, more, that's a normative social decision for how to classify something. That's not a biological explanation.
2: And there is a biological explanation where the, the prefrontal cortex changes. The the, the way the, uh, the prefrontal cortex changes so much that decision-making is affected, and then all That's these... That's called couples, adolescence. All, sorry? That's called adolescence. No, you see it in these Parkinson people uh, who were given drugs. The
1: They're not adolescent. Yeah, but the prefrontal cortex changes a lot in yeah. other circumstances, such as normal adolescent development. True. Uh,
2: I think what we're, uh, uh, what we're struggling is, and I saw that in your slide is you're saying uh neurobiological changes is, is not addiction i agree neurobiological change you see that when you exercise you see yeah. that when you do everything yeah. but that what we're talking about that is a set of neurological changes over and over in addiction that's very specific to addiction that causes the same symptomatology and that it opens doors to to it doesn't close door it doesn't it opens door to more rather than less all
0: right it's so we have to find some, you know, uh, punctuation point on this. And I think what I hear is, by way of transition to see what other people you know, want to say about this, is whether the changes that you have just described can be understood within the learning model that Mark has provided, or whether they can only be understood as within a pathological disease model. I mean, I think that's why I said at the beginning, you know, that this is at some level, it's a technical question because I think a lot of you agree pretty much on the evidence, on the phenomenology and on the evidence and particularly the, the neurobiological evidence. And so it's the characterization issue, I think, that, that that is of concern here, which then leads to the question, does it matter which way you characterize this? Or not. And I would like to kind of direct the discussion in that, in, that, in that vein. And I have some things to say about it, but I think we should see what else Andy Thompson wants to say. Um, uh, thank you very much for your talks, both of them. Uh, maybe a way to break the deadlock just for a moment. I would be curious, Dr. Lewis, how you would view the, the case that Dr. Randow mentioned about the, the individual with no history that we know of who, say, uh, the woman who delivers C-section is given just uh, some uh, opioid, say, some opioid, and then, you know, develops very quickly a severe addiction. I mean, how do you look at that through your lens? I'll tell you. From what I've read, uh,
1: people who take opioids for pain, have a 1% of developing an addiction if they have no previous drug history and a 10% chance of developing an addiction if they have. That's a low percentage. So, I mean, if your mother or your grandmother takes oxycodone for her sciatica or something for a few weeks, do you really think she's going to become a good addict for
0: life? That is not a common pathway. No, I, I understand I understand it's not common, but I'm just saying, when you come across such an individual, how would you think of that person? Because, the, oh, sorry, I'm not sure about the end. How would you, you know, how would you conceptualize or think of that individual, that rare individual with no history, who, who does suddenly, with very little exposure, develop a, a pretty serious opioid addiction? Okay, so that one or two percent. Yeah. I
1: think that's a really interesting question. Is what's different? Sorry, did you want to
3: get into that? I did. I actually. So there's an the interaction to now saying that, that that statistic. What turned out is a very flawed statistic the, that uh, research has called, been called into question. Um, one of the things that's very interesting is it turns out that um, short-term exposure to opioids are extremely addictive, and one of the reasons we're in this crisis is because we were all taught as physicians that there was no risk with short-term use.
1: Oh, I, I so know. there's, so there's a, a lot of literature a, that's that. Sure, of exposure to opioids can, can absolutely trigger mean, addiction higher. Especially if you're poor, if you're in crisis, if you have dysfunctional oh yeah.
3: No, I mean, I'm just saying in terms of just the actual exposure to it. Yes, I understand.
1: Also, if you're exposed to porn, you're much more likely to become a porn addict.
3: But I also wanted to just say, I'm a psychiatrist also, Mm -hmm. who has done mindfulness-based stress reduction and all sorts of other things as well. But one of the things that when you spoke in your talk, When you use the example of binge drinking, you said everyone will, you know, many people will drink in college, they'll binge drink in college. Their behavioral drinking, like excessive binge drinking, does not necessarily set somebody up for addiction unless they have a genetic vulnerability. And so what happens commonly is you see people in college, you'll see people who will have binge eating disorders or binge drinking disorders. The vast majority, like 70% of them, will go on to just live their lives. They're done with it in their 30s, as you said. But there is a subgroup of people who are genetically vulnerable who are going to become addicts simply by virtue of the way in which they were, not raised, but they were genetically vulnerable. Yes, so they may also
1: become suicides, they may also become Mm -hmm. depressives, they may also become a lot of other things. And the behavioral genetics is hodgepodge. There is absolutely no constellation of genes that predicts to addiction. However, certain character traits predict to addiction. And what behavioral genetics does is it compounds, it adds variance from these various character traits. So if you have an antisocial or risk-taking personality trait, you're more likely to become an addict. If you have the opposite personality trait, and if you tend to be uh, neurotic or or introverted or shy or socially uh, um, seclusive, then you're also more likely to become an addict. So there are certain personality traits, that all just about everything has a genetic uh, linkage of about forty to sixty percent. Anything's been measured in psychology. The Big Five personality factors itself forty to sixty percent. So it's just not a very satisfactory explanation for addiction. No, so, um, I just wanted
3: to make
1: those two observations. Uh, certain people are more vulnerable, but the reasons are complex. Okay.
0: Yes, thanks. Um, so thank you both very, both for your talks. Um, I think we got really close to a, an interesting insight during that very brief moment when Naseema, you said, that would be a disease, and Mark, you said, no, that would be a chemical dependency. Um, maybe you could speak about a little bit more in terms of how it is that you differentiate between those two things. So I think, Naseema, what you had said was if you, if you just pushed a drug on someone, eventually they would become an addict. And Mark said no, they would become, a, become a chemically dependent. Well, Tell may I yeah, say, say something, something about, about this? Yes. Because my understanding about the diagnostic criteria is that the, the, the uh, idea of physical dependence, which I think is what we're talking about here, has been separated explicitly from the definition of the diagnostic criteria of to say opioid use disorder and in this extreme version, addiction, right? It's the drug seeking, you know, aspect of it and the behavioral features that are the cardinal aspects of the definition of the DSM disorder, the extreme form of which is addiction, right? And it's made clear that we do not include in that definition the being physically dependent, you know, upon the drug. Um, and needing it and having tolerance and then you know, having withdrawal that, because that can be induced other ways that are completely independent of the phenomenon that, that we describe, whether it's a learning model or it's described in some other way. That I think that distinction is built into the diagnostic criteria. Mark, what do you think of that? You
1: know, I totally agree. It, it, to me it's pretty simple. If you take uh, antidepressants, SSRIs for weeks or even months, you are going to have severe withdrawal symptoms if you stop. When you stop, whether you're depressed or not it has nothing to do with it. Same goes with beta blockers, uh, blood pressure medications, a whole bunch of drugs that create chemical dependence. It doesn't mean you want them or like them in particular. It just means that your nervous system has been altered by these drugs in such a way that there's a rebound effect. So I, I think that is really quite different from the psychological features of addiction in which you feel that this is the only thing that's really going to make me feel happy or feel okay or feel yeah. complete. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this just one of the things I, I think
0: they agree on the phenomenology okay. let, let, of addiction. So let me see where it out.
2: So, yeah, and I think maybe I didn't clarify is that, yes, if you put 10 people here and push heroin every day or morphine, whatever you want to give them, that not all of them are going to have the disease, right? There's some of them are going to have a dependency where where if you stop, it will be be miserable, uh, but others will develop, and then you let them go. Others, some of them, maybe one of 10, you know, about 10% will develop the disease, where we'll lie, we'll, we'll go get it, we'll, you know, we'll sell things, we'll do whatever it takes to continue to get. Okay. So that's the difference. It's not everybody who will do drugs will
0: develop. Addiction. So, so this entire conversation at this point is revolving around that 10 percent yes. subpopulation.
2: They're, not everybody develops an addiction.
1: So I, I think we all agree that some people are more sensitive and more at risk for addiction than others. I think we all agree on that. And so you. Uh, sometimes the gentleman in the back was uh, saying that there is that person who uh, you never would have guessed. So of Uh, Who get becomes addicted? But you know, a lot of psychological issues are not on the surface. Have to do with things that have happened a long time ago that one is not conscious of. So and you know, people don't get addicted to bananas or certainly not cucumbers. Uh, People get addicted to things that are attractive, things that give you a big bang for the buck. And that's why you know, drugs are some drugs are particularly addicted from the psychological sense. Never mind the chemical.
3: I, just, I was reading an interest, hearing an interesting article um, on the news. It was this um, post driving. I think it was on NPR. And there's a phenomenon now that people are describing that if you give a patient a narcotic intraoperatively while they're under anesthesia, they will wake up with more pain and actually will trigger a craving for the medication. That um, it's the process of being anesthetized that sets them up. And so there's a huge push now in, in anesthesiology that's starting to look at that, that the time that you can give somebody a pain medicine is as they're waking and upcoming out of anesthesia. But if you actually inject them intra, you know, intraoperatively, you have set them up. And so it's a major push. So there's all these things that physicians have inadvertently done in the service of trying to protect people from being in pain, they've set up these kind of amazing things. And the only other thing I would say is that part of the other thought that people have in terms of the opioid epidemic is that there was a psychiatrist who came up with the concept of direct marketing to patients who was oxycontin. Oh, yeah, that was Right, and he actually said you cannot get addicted if you're on a tiny dose of it. So yeah, that was bullshit. So there, we ourselves, <laughs> we set ourselves up for a lot of the Vulnerabilities, but I think when we expose huge populations to these things, we I mean, do end up with people self-medicating
1: pain and angst and stuff. But there is a small group of people who do self-medicate because they are truly biologically set up for it, you or know, course, psychologically set up for sort of it. Psychology. I was one of the ten percenters. So I've had a history of drug abuse in my youth. Um, I was I, I got uh, severe spinal stenosis about seven years ago. Um, and a lot of pain, and I, I started getting large amounts of oxycodone and also a fentanyl patch. Then I got surgery. Uh, then I weaned off the drugs in about a month and a half, and I was fine. I'm in no pain now, so I don't have any wish to return to obese. So it's it's not magical. It's not it's not an evil force, you know, that invades your system and is forever. It's very much depends on. How you are in your life? How you feel? What kinds of support systems you have? And also your experience with drugs themselves, because as I say, most people get sick of it and stop or die. Or die. Um, A few that I think th- thank you both for, for your talk. Uh, uh, as
3: others have sort of mentioned, I, you know, Dr. Lewis, one of your, your last sort of question started oh, the sentence on your topic slide. You know, does it matter? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I'm wondering, both of you sort of. Uh, We're talking about this sort of somewhat dichotomously, but both of you have mentioned uh, sort of the integration of both of your views in in, in many ways, um, with differences, of course. Um, One thing I'm curious about, uh, I'm I'm a psychologist here in our health system, and I'm curious about the treatment implications that both of your models have, uh, um, and how we
2: treat addiction. Um, And and, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, so, and this is a meet. Uh, he and I work together. So, um, uh, treatment for addiction uh, includes both um, pharmacotherapy, uh, and the, the brain disease model has really helped because we're able to really identify in the brain areas that we can target with medications. Uh, it works better for some than others. Um, opioid is one of them that works really well. Um, alcohol dependence has, what now, four medications that are approved for uh, treatment. So uh, what we know is that um, therapy, you know, whether it's um, CBT, there's a lot of uh, uh, things done on CBT. Now mindfulness is getting a lot of uh, attention is that it causes uh, some of the change in the brain um, that we see even with medication, and then what we've learned is combining both medication and therapy is actually one of the best way uh, to do it. We've also learned uh, through some of the uh, work done in neurobiology is that exercise is another way that is getting a lot of attention because it seems to affect some of the brain circuitry and reverse some of the damage that was done by addiction. So um, there is there is no uh, the way I see it is um, a, a behavior. You can look at it from a biological thing and say there's this dopamine release, this thing, that's why there's a behavior. You can look at it to say yes, there is a learned thing, that's why there that is a behavior. But I'll say that the learned thing causes can cause the brain and the that, that change in the brain, and change in the brain can cause the learning thing. So I'm not saying one excludes the other one. It's pretty much the same.
1: I think we would agree that um, some drugs and, and many uh, psychological or psychosocial interventions are both. Helpful. But I think the great promise of developing new chemical interventions for addiction that came with NIVA, that they've been talking about for 20 or 30 years, haven't happened. I mean, so we've had methadone for, what, 50 years? And uh, now we've got Suboxone as well. So what? We've got Naloxone and Naltrexone, which you can combine. I, I have issues when you say, so what? Suboxone
2: is saving lives. Uh, no, 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 I don't so, mean that.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, we know that if you give opioid addicts other opioids, they are less likely to go back to the street and buy heroin and do whatever they have to do to buy heroin, and that's a very good thing. But that's not rocket science. That's replacing one opioid for another. But sorry. And, I, anyway, <laughs> anyway, it's it's, it's evidence based. It's absolutely a very very important treatment uh, um, vehicle for people with for opioid addiction. And,
3: and absolutely
1: belongs should be available
0: for. I have person. to say
2: that we agree on the fact that abstinence is ideal. Right. Abstinence is really what I try to help my patient achieve. It's a uh, Abstinence <laughs> is what I push my
0: patient to, to
2: achieve. The, uh, for some, um, venous is really a miracle for them. And the, the, the number of lives, I'd say, it's, to me, it's close to a miracle. Um, again, the, the, the model that, that we put yeah, can actually help open new, like I, I told you, neurosurgery is going to be next because we know some of the surgeries that are uh, affected that but we can use gamma knife, we can use uh, TMS, we can use other things for those who are not benefited from therapy and medications. That would be nice. Yep.
0: You can try. Um, so uh, I'd like to make a couple of comments. Uh, here as a consumer of the science uh, uh, and the different perspectives that we've had here, I have been wondering about the, the so what question. What difference does it make whether you use the, the characterization, you know, of the disease or not? Um, and I think if I understood everything that Mark said here and that what he's written, that um, I don't, uh, all, all the reasons, that the, what I call the public health establishment, you know, has been uh, emphasizing the, the value of the, uh, the brain disease concept and all the reasons that they are trying to do it in order to promote a caring and compassionate response and an understanding of what can be severely disabling for people um, when they are, uh, you know, suffering and, and dysfunctional. Um, even if they can over time, uh, you know, uh, 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 stay without treatment and recover, that at least for those people, what they want is to provide, you know, better access to care, more compassionate care, and so on. And part of their reason for using the brain disease formulation is they think that it helps promote public policies that do that. I think that's the clear, you know, to me. You said at some point in the uh, and what I think is important about your work, is that you root your model, the different model, in the the neuroscience and that I don't think you all disagree at all fundamentally about the the neuroscience, you know, here, and about the phenomenology of addiction and particularly even if you get rid of the word disorder and the DSM, the the cardinal attributes of opioid use disorder, you know, cocaine use disorder and particularly the severe end, you know, with addiction. I don't think you will disagree about what those attributes feel like and look like, right? So the question is, so what are we disagreeing about here other than what I characterized at the beginning as potentially a technical question that boils down to what are the cardinal attributes of a disease? So what do we mean when we use the term disease as opposed to something else? In this view, forever, until the political statements have been made about this, you know, we are using the term disorder, it's the DSM for, you know, term for this. It doesn't imply anything about causation. It's the phenomenology and the severity of the symptoms that matter and the dysfunction and distress. I don't think we disagree about that. So the way that i am trying to understand this is, I've got a choice between using the term disorder or using the term disease, right? I mean, I think just in terms of communicating the common understanding that we have. So as a person that's trying to accomplish sensible things as a matter of policy, what is the downside, you know, of using the term disease, or i put it the other way, what is the effect one way or the other? Uh, does it have positive consequences in terms of facilitating better public understanding to use the term disease? If it does, what's the downside of using that disease, uh, using that formulation, and is there so I think there's a rhetorical question here that I really am trying to figure out whether there's a problem with it or not. Then I think, apart from the, the you know that question, is the clinical question, which I, as I mentioned to you, I think is important too, because I know that you have said that you think, from a clinical standpoint, it may not be helpful to some subset at least of people who are experiencing addiction uh, to imply that they are powerless by characterizing it as a disease and that that is the pushback you know that we might have because it actually may not accomplish positive consequences and it may have negative consequences at the clinical level for you know at least some people. And okay now maybe that's so, this is an empirical question about what would be the clinical consequences of doing this, how does it affect recovery and how does it uh, affect people and there may be some that in some way other people that find it helpful? You know, these are empirical questions that we really could, you know, could could attend to. Um, My inclination is to think that there's nothing inconsistent with saying that it's a disease for telling people that you have the uh, the responsibility to take, to manage your disease successfully. Um, And these are personal choices. You are, we want to empower you to have greater control over your condition, right? Um, And calling it a disease is not inconsistent with that. That's true of all chronic diseases, including, uh, you know, diabetes um, uh, and, you know, heart disease, anything that people might have where you have to exercise, you know, care to manage your own condition and govern your behavior in a way to prevent your hope to get better and prevent it from deteriorating. I don't see any difference with addiction in that. You want people to take, to manage their lives and take control over their lives. The question is, what is effective? helping them do that. If this could be effective and helpful, well then that's a good reason to do it. If it would be it subverted, as you were worried about, well then I think that's important to know. So the way I see this is, you know, it, the, the so what question depends upon is it useful? Is it useful? Because you conceded in your talk something like severe addict uh, addiction is like a disease in many ways. It does have some, there's some analogies, it depends upon your tech, technical descriptions of disease. Uh, and and so on, but if it's like a disease in many ways, the question is, is it useful to use that phrase? If it's a plausible phrase, is it useful to do it? And I think my inclination in reading everything is, I think it's useful. I think we are seeing the evidence of that right now in terms of, and again, it's not only the language, okay? I mean, I just think it's more awkward to use a lot of other phrases. You know that can be that can be used about this. I think this is something that you know that resonates at a certain level uh, in terms of what we're trying to do, which is to have to care for people and be compassionate and be helpful, you know, to people and and stop criminalizing and punishing and so on all the bad things. And particularly given what we have to do to cope with this multifactorial, the channels of that are feeding so many more people into addiction that is tied up with pain management problems. That's why this is happening. I mean, there are a lot of other factors that are going into that in terms of culture and racism and so on. But this is happening now, and again, this is why I said this is why I wanted to do this program. This matters right now. You know, we want to get more money for Medicaid. We want to get more funding for drug abuse treatment, so, excuse me, substance abuse disorder treatment. Um, uh, uh, and, and we need it. I mean, this is not, in, you know, this is really consequential. And what is going to be most helpful, actually, in accomplishing the political you know, so the social policy objectives, you know, that we have. And right now, my inclination is it may be a political statement and not a scientific statement, but it's the statement we ought to make, right? And it's not implausible. It's not wrong, right? Okay, I guess that's part of what, you know, my feeling is, is you know, I, I think your model is persuasive to me, you know, just in terms. But since it covers the same territory, right, as something else that's being characterized another way, I want to accept that this is, you know, the the hard, the heavy-duty, hard-learning, you know, model Um, is is a right, it's a good and useful way of understanding uh, what is happening with people. But we have to give it a name, right? And right now I do think the choices are, you know, opioid use, substance use disorder because that's the, 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 the term of art with regard to any kind of clinical intervention. And so we can use that, or and or, you know, we can use the term disease. And if it's useful in public rhetoric to use that term, it's not implausible, you know, to use the term. And that's all I need to be persuaded, you know, by in in order to do this. So this is actually the reason I wanted to do the lecture, because I wanted to give that speech. To you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Does anybody else want to say? Do you want to, either one of you? I mean, I could run the run the gavel down and say we're done. Or Yay. do you want to have the last word, either one? Of you?
1: I'll just say I can compromise with
0: you on disorder. So, as far as I'm Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> all right, well, you and I will work this out. Okay, well, we are Thank you